0: Hello folks and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and a writer. You can find some of my work over at platformenterprise.com where, most importantly, you can sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. On this week's show is Professor Emeritus Steve Keen. Steve was one of the few economists to realize that a serious economic crisis was imminent and publicly warned the world of the 2008 financial crash as early as 2005. In fact, it's his work that ensured that Australia, his home at the time, managed to navigate through without experiencing the terrible repercussions that the rest of the world faced. He currently resides in Thailand uh, and he is working on a new model of economics for a post-crash world. So He joined me today to discuss why and how capitalism needs to be constrained, the economics of climate change, and what mainstream economists are getting wrong. They are getting everything wrong from the sounds of it after speaking to him. It is really quite shocking to realize that a whole academic discipline is refusing to treat climate change as a dangerous, inevitable, and multivariable event. It was really, really shocking to hear what he has to say about their work and about Nobel Prizes being given out to people that have created nonsense mathematical models about how GDP is going to cope depending on how many degrees go up and not taking into account uh, climate refugees and a lack of water or too much water or any of the things that frankly most laymen either are interested in this are, are aware of. So this is a, a disturbing conversation in many levels, realizing that the so-called experts perhaps don't know as much as they should, but it does also present, you know, one of the people that is at the forefront of alternative economics and who is genuinely trying to create models for a way through the upcoming crises that all of humanity faces together. There's a lot to get out of this. I highly advise you take notes through it. I mean, I did. Um, be sure to check Steve out on Patreon. The links are over at platformenterprise.com and support his work if you can. So without further ado, here is Steve. So Thank you so much for for joining me. It's such an honor to have you on the show. You're such a a big name in economics and more importantly, sort of alternative economics.
1: Yeah, it's a strange feeling because I didn't actually ever expect to end up uh, having this sort of leading role. But That's what's what's transpired. So I've just had to get used to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you're Mm. in Thailand now, right?
1: Yeah, the move here was we were living in Amsterdam before that and I was working in the UK as well. And Mm. um, yeah, we, 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 I was out visiting my family in Australia in March of last year because I knew I'd never see my mother again, and mm. uh, because of COVID. And um, when I saw the, you know, how disastrous the numbers were for both the UK and the Netherlands, I said to my Thai-born wife, whom I met in Amsterdam a few years earlier, "We're getting out of here." And we just we literally within six days of me getting back to Amsterdam. We're on a plane to Bangkok, and. Uh, it was a very good move last year. Not looking out so well this year, but it was a very good move last year because they managed to be one of the countries that completely suppressed COVID. We had six months mm-hmm. with no, uh, no need to wear masks. Uh, you know, it was wonderful. Now, now not so good, but uh, they, they actually yeah. look like they might finally get on top of uh, the Delta outbreak, which would be remarkable, but there's medium odds they'll get there.
0: Oh, really? What yeah. are they using to get on top of it? Because, I mean, certainly the West has just succumbed to the delta variant
1: it's really because they had experience with sars and so mm-hmm. they, they know what to do when you have a, a pandemic outbreak so the west and this is one reason if you look at africa's performance and asia's performance it's far better than europe or america's now why is that not because they're richer obviously uh it's because they have more experience with public health and mm-hmm. uh it, largely and there's other issues as well but i think that's probably one of the major ones and people here are quite accustomed to wearing masks anyway so to be told you have to wear masks uh, no matter where you go, uh, like literally walking on the street, you have to have a mask on. Uh, that just means that, the, we, as we found, it was ultimately the airborne transmission that matters, not, uh, not surfaces. Uh, and there you know, were words, sterilising surfaces anyway, handing out masks for free, well, not for free, for uh, 10 baht, which is, uh, what is that? 40 US cents for four masks. Oh, wow. Okay, surgical masks. Um, okay. So it meant everybody had masks. Uh, and they had a good track and trace system from the SARS experience. So they did that very successfully with the original outbreak. And the deltas come along and they were slack. They basically thought, oh, we can get on top of this. Actually, it, the outbreak began before the annual summer holiday, uh, annual holidays here, which is the Songkrat festival. And they let people go home to their home provinces after Songkrat. Well, that meant rather than just being in Bangkok when it happened to one of the high class bars here, the transmission, uh, it was throughout the whole 60 you know, something provinces. So they gave themselves, by being, by being complacent about being successful the previous year, they made the problem much worse this time around. But they finally increased the, uh, the severity and now for the last three weeks, the numbers have been falling. So it peaked at 23,000 about three weeks ago. It was down, it was down as low as 14,000 a couple of days ago. They've just opened up malls again, which I think is possibly a mistake doing mm-hmm. it too soon. Yeah? So we'll have to wait and see. But anyway, so even with that, with with a much lower level of vaccination than the UK, it's got about as quarter as many cases right now per day.
0: Yeah. What do you think the uh, global fallout of COVID is going to be?
1: I think it's the end of globalisation. That's probably the major thing, because the the attitude that everything should be uh, specialised, that you should have extremely long production chains, uh, largely driven by low wages, but also sometimes Mm -hmm. by minimum. By mineral availability and so on, um, meaning you spread production throughout you know multiple countries. I think the I think where the, the story with the Apple iPhone, for example, is about a, a hundred countries are involved in its manufacture. Well, that's got to go back to the stage where it's pretty much one, um, you know, not not necessarily that tight, but production in a regionalized approach to production, and you scale things uh, so the stuff that can be done at a local scale is, and only stuff that can't be done at a local scale is done at a, at a at a regional scale. Uh, and that is something we should have done in the first place because the whole argument about comparative advantage that determined how uh, a trade policy for the last 50 or so years is just one of these economic th- uh, fallacies. It, it, it's specialization talks about um, improving your efficiency of the use of the resources you currently have. What gives you growth, which is what this is all about, of course, is developing new resources over time. And uh, that that uh, can often be a, a case of, if you have to increase your investment levels, not uh, increase your trade levels. So countries that mm-hmm. specialised on investment, like South Korea, China, Japan, et cetera, et cetera, they're the success stories. When you look at the ones who specialised, particularly the ones who specialised in uh, raw materials, they've gone backwards relatively. That includes, for example, my home country of Australia. Um, but also a lot of countries in third world uh, regions that you know followed that advice so covid will force us to do what we should have done but there'll be an enormous amount of painful unraveling of long production chains as well as a result of that
0: and in nations that aren't resource rich mm. but are economically rich such as you know the west generally mm. speaking what will that look like
1: well, I mean, a lot of a lot of the resources. First of all, we have resource constraints, and this is something which mainstream economics has ignored, and had fantasy arguments against the idea that there are limits to growth. They'll disparage anybody who talks about limits and call you a Malthusian. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a swear word. Well, thank you. yes, frankly, I'm a Malthusian, because what Malthus said that there there are finite limits to the to exponential processes, and that is now. Uh, something we, we was warned about by the limits to growth, which mainstream economists disparaged without understanding the, the logic behind it uh, 50 years ago now. And we're now, when you, when you do a, a detailed audit of the usage of resources, uh, and there's actually a, a brilliant uh, engineer called Simon Michau, who's based in Finland, whom you should have a talk to about this. He's done probably the most detailed work I've seen on looking at our, uh, the extent to which we're exhausting the availability of minerals. And even he's put it down to the, when you look at the periodic table, there are large segments of the periodic table where we are using up uh, a large share of the existing resources of these elements. And if your production process is dependent on particular elements, uh, then you simply can't keep on producing at that scale uh, when you breach those physical limits. And uh, there's a a range of things like cadmium, uh, silver, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're pushing the boundaries already, and uh, to to imagine that you can continue this growth process is a problem. So that that's that's a general framing of the whole thing. But what it would, what it would mean is we have to drastically reduce our physical consumption of resources on the planet, and try to move away from rare minerals, like for example silver, with uh, solar cells towards copper, for example, which is a technological leap. Um, uh, so we don't, so we don't actually continue using things which are running out of. Um, and I, I think, and thinking more in terms of COVID, not just COVID but climate change in general, we're going to focus much more on basics, much more on the right. essential things that you have. you have to have: food, you have to have energy, um, but you have to have energy that doesn't add to the carbon dioxide load in the planet. So a whole range of things like that are going to be necessary. So COVID is just, in my opinion, the warm up for climate change, and. Yeah it'll mean a complete reversal of the direction that uh, western society has followed in the last half century
0: how did economists get so entangled in something that seems that would seem logical even to a child if something is finite you cannot infinitely use it like where did this policy of endless growth come from and and how has it not been stopped already on an official yeah,
1: level it, it comes it comes out of your uh, if, if you um, have a, a frame of reference that is convincing but wrong, then you can lead yourself into a, a cul-de-sac without even knowing the cul-de-sac is there. So the framework they have is that uh, capitalism, uh, the, the, the production involves substitutability. So their model of production is simply an anagram of the model of consumption. Okay? Mm. And they say consumers get utility by consuming goods, and the more of an individual good you consume, the less utility you get. So one banana gives you a lot of utility, two bananas, the second banana less utility and so on. And that's, mm. that's the way they explain consumption. And they use exactly the same logic for production. So they argue there's substitutability. If you don't eat bananas, you can eat a strawberry, you know, that sort of thing. No problem. Uh, they apply to the production. Well, you think you can't. If you have a production process that needs silver, uh, you can't put copper in there. So the substitutability that they focus upon is, is a general hand-waving thing as well. Uh, it's not that they go and take a look at what the physical resources are. Uh, so with that framework, the, the idea that substitutability and efficiency and, 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 and markets moving rapidly and, and production moving along what they call a production possibility frontier. Uh, and at this, equally, the, their model of production has you inputting labour and capital and getting output. No energy and no raw materials. And that's the vast majority of economic models today don't include those raw materials. If you go back, like even even mainstream economics, if you go back 40 years, uh, maybe, uh, economists then were working on what they call computable general equilibrium models. Everybody doing a PhD when I did mine, which is, uh, what is that, 40 years? Something like 40 years ago now. 30 years ago, actually. I started when I was over 40. Um, they were all doing computable general equilibrium models of their national economies. Now, a, a CGE model, as they're called, uh, divides the economy into sectors and says, you need inputs from these sectors to produce outputs from those sectors. So, you know, to produce iron, uh, iron you need iron ore, you need iron, you need coal, etc., cetera, et cetera. And then to produce coal, you need iron, et etc., et cetera, and so on. Those, they make it a, a matrix of the inputs that are necessary for to make the outputs. So that meant they were actually looking at physical quantities. In those days, those sorts of models could say, well, we need physical resources as inputs to produce outputs, and then that could have been something they go back and take a look at and say, are we depleting these resources or not? So that was a feasible approach. But what's taken over since the 70s is this idea of what they call intertemporal production functions, where they talk about people maximising utility over time, and their models, which are based on the work of an English polymath called Ramsey back in the 1920s, Uh, Their models have production just involving labor and capital. So they don't even have a mental framework to realize that they've got to talk about physical things when they talk about production.
0: Okay, but how (laughs) is, why is it if somebody like you brings this up and says, hey, this is a problem, why is it that you're called Malthusian? Uh, Why is it that you're part of an alternative economics? Because even to a layman like myself. Mm. If, you know, if you need an ingredient when you make something. Yeah. Surely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: like, I, I'll give them the, the silliest thing I ever experienced on this front was I did a research project for the United Nations Environment Program about oh, 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, and we were presenting it. Uh, and the chief economist of the United Nations Environment Program was in the room and uh, myself and the other one of the other major presenters were talking about the requirement for energy. You must have energy to produce output. And this guy, the chief economist, literally, he may be in a part of the, maybe at the overall, but a chief economist Mm -hmm. for Party of the United Nations environment program, said, well, if we need to make, need more energy, we'll make it out of labor and capital. And myself and and my crew just laughed and said, so you believe in perpetual motion machines, do you? And he went, what? And we said, look, you can't make energy. The, th- the first law of you know the thermodynamics, the conservation of energy, is only that amount of energy in the universe. You can change its form, but you can't change the amount. Um, yeah. So they, they, they are literally that ignorant of the physical world. And having had to spend the last three years of my life reading what they write on the environment, it is just terrifying how ignorant they are, but at the same time, how clever they think they are.
0: Mm. So what uh, economic policies or uh, schools of thought do you currently see being applied to the environment and taken seriously that you think are extremely dangerous going well, forward?
1: Neoclassical economics in general. I mean, the work of William Nordhaus, for example, the guy who got the Nobel Prize in 2018 for work on climate change. He's got the, the yeah. most dangerously diluted work I've ever read. And I've, I've spent half my life being, actually half a century, 50 years, I became a critic of mainstream economics in 1971 i think in august july or august 71 (laughs) and uh, and in all that time i've never read anything as lousy as the work that nordhaus puts out and this is partially um uh, just the fact that he makes up his own numbers and calls it data and and that and that practice has become rife throughout this particular like through the environmental economics stuff that neoclassicals do so for example um he, um, in, in, in trying to measure the impact of climate change, he simply assumed, in 1991 this was, simply assumed, and this is, he's done it before, but this is a, a key paper, 1991 he assumed that 87% of industry would be unaffected by climate change. Because they have yes, 87%, okay? All manufacturing, all services, all government and mining, okay? Will be unaffected. Now the only things that manufacturing Retail and wholesale services, government, and, under- and mining have went to underground mining. It's below a roof, where it's underground. Therefore, not affected by climate change. Now, what he's doing is fundamentally identifying climate change with the weather. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, and and also not even being aware of these so-called carefully controlled environments. I I collected some photographs during the floods in Germany of factories being you know inundated with water. Yeah. Uh, And, 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 you know, factories burnt down in California by fires and so on. Uh, The carefully controlled environment depends on the environment itself outside being what you set for the design parameters of your factory. So if your factory was built in a region where the average temperature is 20 degrees, and that's what you've set your air conditioning units to, and it comes 22 degrees, you're outside the operational parameters of your air conditioning system. And and that will affect things like, you know, uh, clean rooms, which is one of the things he said will be unaffected by climate change. So it is just incredibly ignorant about the physical world. And yet this has determined how we approach the biggest challenge the physical world has ever thrown at us.
0: You know, you were talking earlier at the beginning about specialization. how is it that academics have become so specialized that they don't speak to each other about their fields? Yeah.
1: That's, that's, that's part of the problem as well. I mean, um, it, it's partly because you have to become obsessed about a topic to become an expert in it. Okay. Yeah. But when you become obsessed about a topic and you're in, in, in science because of the way science works and economics is not a science. Okay. It's a discipline. Mm. It's not a science. And, and the, the main, there's two things that are the main reasons that I say that, uh, but in a science, uh, if there is a, a fallacy, if you have an, a, a theory that predicts something, which you then find is not confirmed by experiment, mm-hmm. then that that experimental failure is with you forever. OK, if any student wants to reproduce that failure and they can afford the equipment, they can mm-hmm. do it. Um, mm-hmm. So the, 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 the failure of a paradigm to meet a particular test, which if you know the work of Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn. No, I don't. Well, worth reading. A book called *The Structure of Scientific Revolutions*. Okay, he overturned the the idea of Karl Popper about scientists being wanted, willing, uh, the ambition of scientists being to make a bold conjecture and then try to disprove the conjecture. That was what uh, Popper said scientists do. So scientists make a bold conjecture and then you try experimentally to to destroy your conjecture, and it's actually success when you manage to prove your conjecture wrong. And then by doing it, you refine down what is true and you finally get to a level of the truth. Uh, Kuhn said that's not what scientists do at all. Uh, What they do instead, they have a a paradigm that they think explains the real world. And they then go and do experiments that are designed to confirm that paradigm. But because the paradigm is never complete, there'll be some experiments which invalidate the paradigm. And then their response to that is to try to change the paradigm a bit so that it fits the new data, and they'll struggle to do it. Now, if it's a tiny thing, then yes, they can do it. But if it's something huge, like, for example, finding that energy comes in discrete units called quanta, rather than being continuous, they simply can't cope. So uh, when Max Planck, who's discovered quantum mechanics by solving what's called the black body radiation problem, um, he simply did the mathematics, Uh, he did what's called integration in the complex plane. And part of the result was you had to have discrete a unit, very, very tiny. I think 10 to the minus 37. um, I've forgotten the actual unit, but it's tiny. But everything, energy had to come in these small units called quanta, which we now associate with photons and things like that. Um, But he tried to persuade, because it solved the experimental failure of Maxwellian theory, he tried to convince his Maxwellian Com- comrades that this was correct and they should abandon the Maxwellian approach and none of them would mm. and he finally concluded uh, in, in, his, in the cavalier way of summarizing what he said was science advances one funeral at a time Okay, now he's mm. slightly more elaborate than that but the idea was the old guard hangs on and tries to extend the current paradigm to cover the anomaly, or tries to get students to ignore the anomaly, which students won't do because they can reproduce it for themselves any time. Sure. And so over time, uh, inevitably, uh, the, the old guard dies off, and they have to replace themselves with people who aren't part of the old paradigm. And then a new paradigm is developed and that solves the anomaly, and then on you go, and then the same thing happens again. So there's like a cleaning out process when you get an anomaly which is, um, undermines the whole basis of a paradigm. Now in economics that doesn't happen because the anomalies will be things like the Great Depression which wasn't supposed to happen according to mainstream economics at the time. Along come Keynes, so we get a replacement for a while. Then the Second World War comes along and the economy is going gangbusters because of the armaments race involved. And then in the aftermath of the Second World War uh, as it happens the level of private debt's been driven down so much that there's uh, nobody's got debt weighing them down anymore people are willing able to spend you got a boom at that stage and so the problem of depression disappears and people forget about it Mm. and then you and then what happens is the mainstream economics fail to see the depression coming then along we get to the 50s and 60s and they slowly rebuild themselves and come back and say capitalism is perfect uh you know and and it's a seductive vision that people who uh, learn economics fall into, uh, it's a vision of a utopia, fundamentally. And some people will say, this is just nonsense, you didn't get the Great Depression right, you've got to be able to explain that. That's where people like Hyman Minsky come from, and I built my work on Hyman Minsky's work. Uh, But the majority that go through economics departments get re-schooled in the mainstream and it stays there and you can't get rid of the bloody thing.
0: Well, oh, it's, it's not a very uh, promising,
1: <laughs> well, promising
0: analysis of the, the, the to thing,
1: the, the thing which is different this time round is that the, the financial crisis wasn't predicted by the mainstream. So one reason mm. I've become famous is because I've stuck my neck out saying there's going mm. to be a crisis. It didn't happen in my home country of Australia, partially because I was so successful in raising the alarm that the government, through the kitchen sink at the economy before the crisis really hit, including restarting the housing bubble over there, um, which is, you know, credit kept kept flowing and you never got the negative credit event I expected for Australia. But America got it in spades, so did the UK, so did Europe, uh, so you had a a global financial crisis. Now, the mainstream didn't see that coming, okay? Uh, But But you
0: saw it coming in 2005.
1: I I saw it coming and I was warning about it all the time. But they they laughed it off effectively. I mean, they were in shock for a while. Within a few years, they're saying, "Well, we have to add new frictions to our model." And what what they have is the model of a a, their core model, which is called the real business cycle, is of a perfectly efficient system, where price changes handle everything. So any disturbance that comes, like a change in there's two things which can shock the model. It's called a, a change in technology. So there's some sh- shift in technology and a change in t- consumer tastes. Those are the two things. And they, they assume that's given by a random process, you know? Yeah. So a big shock comes through to a technology and a big shock to um, um, tastes, and that can explain the Great Depression or Great Recession, and on they go. And they're now back into the same old garbage again. So you just, you, you can't shake them. But the thing is, when this happened, of course, it's in the days of the internet. You have people like George Soros, who was a critic of the mainstream, uh, who funded the thing called the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Uh, and the students formed their own social groups, rethinking economics, for example, post crash economics, and so on. And, and so the students have kept it going. And not all of them, but there's a minority that are still saying this is nonsense, we need to change it. So there's more chance for a shift this time around. But unfortunately, the main thing I think is going to happen is they have so completely bamboozled themselves and us about the dangers of climate change that when mm-hmm. it hits, that's going to be the end of market, of the of, of, of you know, conventional market economy. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, um, people are going to say, who misled us into this trap? And partly as the answer is the oil companies and the coal companies and so on. But partly it's the economists and I'm going to say these bunch these guys are dangerous for capitalism. They've got to go. So
0: Do you think that we could um, rework capitalism into a sustainable market economy or do you think that that has to go to
1: you? you, 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 uh, There's the the promise of capitalism is something which mainstream economics doesn't even mention and that's capacity to bring about innovation. They simply assume innovation occurs without explaining it. So uh, if you want to prefer capitalism to as practiced socialism or to the feudal system beforehand, what you get out of it is a rapid rate of innovation. That was one of Marx's comments about capitalism. Marx was mm-hmm. you know, very strong about capitalism being an innovative system compared to any other social system. So you want to hang on to that. I mean, that's where you get your Elon Musk's from and, and things like that. Um, but you, you have to constrain it. And there has to be an overarching constraint that says this much of the planet is available for humans. And, the, and this much of the planet is a no-go zone for us because mm-hmm. we will always go in there and exploit it because fundamentally what we're doing is taking advantage of free energy and free resources. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so long as there are free resources somewhere, we're gonna go and exploit them. And mm-hmm. for the, that is great for the, the capitalism, it's lousy for the ecology. Without an ecology, there is no capitalism. So you have to put absolute constraints on how far capitalism goes. And that means rolling it back uh, and then also making sure that what, what it does is innovate in, in a real sense rather than the, the, the wanky stuff we've had for the last 50 years, where most of the innovation has been financial you know, Ponzi schemes rather mm. than you know, genuine technological innovation.
0: Mm-hmm. So it might be possible then to create a, a circular capitalism um, or a, a social capitalism? I don't know if that's the right word.
1: Well, I, I think the initial thing is pulling our heads back in dramatically. Because mm. I mean, I think what we're seeing now with the the, the, the crazy climate of the last couple of years uh, is quite possibly a sign of the beginnings of serious breakdowns in the in the global ec- ecological systems. So the two ones that seem to be going, we know, we know the Arctic summer sea ice is on a hiding to nothing to disappear, and people don't realize the impact of that. I didn't realize until I started reading the scientific literature on it. But you know, you think of the Arctic region as cold, okay? and the equator is hot. It's true, okay. But because this, during summer, the Arctic is in sun 24 hours a day, Mm. whereas the equator is less than 12 during summer, Uh, the equatorial, the Tropic of Cancer, the Tropic of Capricorn, more energy falls on the Arctic than falls on the equator during the Arctic summer. Now, at the moment, 90% of that's reflected back into outer space or not not, In the past, it was reflected back into outer space because of the ice cover over the whole of the Arctic. Now, because it's melting, you've got blue water, dark blue turning up rather than ice. So rather than reflecting 90% of the energy, it's absorbing 90% of the energy. Mm -hmm. Now that's a dramatic increase in the energy consumption from the sun, the the, 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 the solar energy we, we retain in the atmosphere. And that is causing the pole to warm much faster than the subtropical regions mm-hmm. are doing. And what you're getting out of that is that volatility in the jet stream, which is partly with the crazy weather, you know, giving us droughts and floods in America, you know, one half and drought, the other half in flood, mm-hmm. um, the floods in Germany, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And with each degree we gain about we can hold about the attributes holds hold about between five and 6% more water. And that means you get much, much more dramatic storms. So each degree, you know, 1.06 to one, Squared to cubed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're just dramatically changing the climate. So with with that situation, we have to go backwards. We have to constrain consumption, and that that's not going to be a easy message to sell at all. Uh, I think it can only be sold once people realise that the alternative is complete breakdown of the economic mm. and ecological system.
0: How can we initiate an economic system like that when we have a global financial system and globalized markets, but we only have national politics. Who is going to initiate
1: that? It's going to be be done from the nation state level. I mean, one of the whole reasons that uh, I think we've wasted so much time in international meetings is because uh, some people, uh, and this includes the oil and, and gas companies and coal companies, know that international agreements come to nothing. So they're very happy to have, have COP26 and the IP, IPCC, this, that, and the other. And no, it'll never get turned into anything that actually happens on the ground. So to so my way of thinking, we, you're right, we have national political systems. That's where you get things done. And I think what's gonna happen is climate change will cause some you know, true catastrophe. I mean, what we've had so far is just warm-ups, but it's something which is so shocking that people in one part of the world where it happens will say, Oh God we've got to do something about it and maybe two or three more will be necessary globally and then and then we'll finally realize with the serious situation we're in so uh, there's, there's actually a science fiction book I hope it'd be a lot better than it turned out to be by one of the great writers Kim Stanley Robinson have you heard of him no I haven't. okay he wrote a series called Red Mars uh, Blue Mars Green Mars I think that's all uh, think that was, okay yeah. okay yeah very very good uh, here he wrote one called the Ministry for the Future and the opening chapter involves what's called a wet bulb temperature catastrophe in India. Do You know the of wet yeah. bulb catastrophe? Yeah. Yeah, uh, so I do, h- but,
0: um, could you explain it a little bit yeah, for people that might okay.
1: not know? Yeah. Okay. Well, we, you t- for us to um, survive, we have to dissipate the heat our body generates. And that requires us to have... We sweat. We're one of the two animals that has lots of sweat glands, the other ones being horses. Uh, <laughs> other animals, You know, strangely enough, we have with one of the reasons we succeeded as a species is sweat glands. Yeah. We could run and, and chase animals, and they they'd get they'd fall over with heat exhaustion. We'd still be running. We'd catch them and kill them. Um, yeah. uh, so anyway, we, we need the temperature and humidity to be below a combination called the wet bulb temperature, which is thirty five degrees. Above that, the outside air is hotter than we are, and our, our evaporation system doesn't work, and you die of heat 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 stroke. And it'll kill. Like if you if you've got plenty of water, well ventilated, you're naked, and you've got a breeze and the temperature's above 35 degrees in the wet bulb measure, uh, you'll die within, th- within three to six hours. So he has that catastrophe happen in a region of India and about you know 10 million people die in one city in one day. And that mm-hmm. then causes India to start doing um, geoengineering. And to basically forget about the rest of the planet. Uh, we need it to be cooler. We're putting sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere and we're not gonna wait for international agreement. Well, I think it's gonna be that sort of thing that happens. Uh, so you'll need something of that nature and that'll be the wake-up call now whether that arrives this decade or next decade uh, but it will arrive because on the trajectory we're going we're simply pushing the system further and further towards breakdowns of essential elements you know I mentioned the Arctic the other one is the uh, what's called the AMOC you know the AMOC no I don't okay Atlantic meridional overturning circulation okay Uh, you might know as the Gulf Stream yeah okay and what what is it's an ocean current that actually connects the two poles, South Pole and North Pole, uh, but in the, the section we talk about is from the uh, pretty much you know, the the, uh, the uh, Gulf of Mexico through to um, the uh, Greenland and the Arctic region, and that's driven by both temperature differences and salinity. So uh, you have, uh, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I don't. I can't I can't explain it in great detail, but the basic idea is high temperatures and high salinity in one direction, and low temperatures and low salinity the other. It, it might it might actually be the reverse, but it's it's certainly <laughs> hot to cold, you know, and the salt yeah. is part yeah. of it as well. So they call it the yeah. thermo they call it the thermo circulation temperature temperature and salt thermohaline. Uh, now, because we've never uh, this this the Gulf Stream has been going for as long as as long as we you know, as humans have known about it okay um, so we've never had the experience of turning it off but there have been past historical experiences where there's been natural processes that have led to a rise in carbon dioxide or heating level leading to rise in carbon dioxide leading to more carbon dioxide leading to a breakdown. You have a melting of Greenland, melting of the Arctic, and then that turns off the AMOC. Um, so scientists, were, when they were looking at it initially, they were saying, well, it looks like it takes about two or three degrees increase over pre-industrial. And it looks like it would take um, 50 to 100 years for it to actually happen. Or well, recent measurements are implying it's already starting to happen. Now the this thing is bimodal. It's either on or off okay Mm. if we turn it off we don't know how to turn it on now what that would mean is a dramatic fall in the temperature of Europe because the large part of the warmth that Europe experiences is because heat has been transferred from the Caribbean regions to Europe and if that stops then temperature in Europe drops now neoclassical economists have actually said that's a good idea why because they're a bunch of lunatics frankly. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. But, but their logic is global warming causes temperatures to rise. The AMOC falling will cause Europe to get cooler. Because Europe such a large part of the global economy, therefore, global, it will reduce the damage caused by temperature change. So literally one guy called Richard Toll, and do look him up, he's got to be I mean, I've met a few assholes in my time. Uh, I, 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 I think he's got to be he's a black hole size asshole. Um, <laughs> he literally said on Twitter, when somebody said AMOC is slowing down, he literally said good, and then quoted oh, his God paper that God. said it was a good idea. And this paper reduces the whole thing just to temperature change, yeah. believes that there's an optimal temperature for uh, agricultural output, because the, the only part of the economy think is going to be affected by climate change is agriculture, fundamentally. Okay. So they said, well, if, you, if, you, if your temperatures is going to uh, push a, 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 a Europe past an optimum temperature, and then amox lying down to push it back towards the optimum it's good we can do without AMOC, isn't that a good idea
0: well like it cancels each other out
1: yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: I, I don't I really I really don't understand because I always thought you yeah, and never you know I've read a couple of economics books you know I've, I've mm. flirted with the idea yeah. from afar and it seems you know very complicated and it seems to be one of those disciplines that attempts to take all of the variables in question to try to come up with different potentialities so like, how, how, how is it that these people that are leading mainstream economics have a tendency to boil these huge problems down into black or white um, it's eventualities? It's
1: largely because they have an elaborate model of the economy which is neat, plausible mm. and wrong. Mm. Okay. They're and like
0: religious. Yes. Yeah. So, I
1: mean, my, my my basic analogy for them, because it's a very very effective analogy is Ptolemaic astronomers. Yeah. You know, the Ptolemaic the Ptolemaic paradigm of the universe was the Earth is at the centre, and the sun and the moon and stars orbit around the Earth on 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 what they originally Aristotle said were perfect spheres. Now mm-hmm. the, the trouble with that was that what are called the planets reverse direction. Okay. And you only explain that by putting them on a sphere, on a sphere. And that was called an epicycle. Okay. okay. And then also to explain, like there's eccentricities. The Earth motion around the Sun is elliptical. It's not a a, a circle, and it varies over time as well. Not, I don't think that it actually affected the scale of uh, of uh, Ptolemaic astronomy, but it still happened. Um, so they they did all the little tweaks. Like say, the Earth isn't quite the center of the universe. It's slightly off, and that was called an equant. Okay. And then and then if you had a particular, uh, uh, when you're trying to fit a model of the world where the, the universe, where the earth is the center, when it's not really, we know that's the sun the center of our solar system, okay? then there's going to be little things which if you, if you get the orbit of Jupiter right, you're going to stuff up the orbit of Mars. Yeah. Okay? So somebody else can be the expert on Mars. And so this on Jupiter, and, and they have these, all these intricate models, all based on exactly the same foundation with tiny differences that mean one model's better for another purpose, and so on. So, there's an incredible explosion of really complicated models, all of which have been fine tuned to pretty closely fit the data, and which are all completely wrong. Yeah. Okay, that's neoclassical yeah. economics.
0: But they get away with it because of this um, tendency to specialize.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because see, what what happens with genuine scientists, and, and, you know, and I know plenty of genuine scientists and mathematicians and so on, and they they come from really hard disciplines. I mean, it, it, you know, a first year physics course is a mind bender. So is the first year engineering mm-hmm. course. Far tougher than what economists go through. I mean, there have been a little joke about my wife here. Uh, she's uh, has no interest in the, in the technical work. That it is, but it happens, she did when she was uh, a student, she actually, for a while, before she got married in the first year at university, studied economics. And I asked her why did she study economics one day? And she said, because it was easy. <laughs> and she's right, you know, yeah. work out where the lines intersect. Um, you know, the first year stuff is juvenile. Uh, first year engineering course, it's bloody de- demanding, ditto for physics, etc., etc. And like in- engineers socialize with other engineers, and you might, a chemical engineer will know that you know, you've got a friend who's doing industrial mechanical engineering and somebody else is uh, you know, doing uh, uh, aeronautical engineering. And they all end up, knowing how hard their own area is, they have respect for the other professions. Mm. And this. And what happens is because economics is taught at a the university, then the others, the sciences actually believe the economists are behaving in a similar fashion. But they're not. They're really—I mean—it it, it applies to the social sciences in general to some extent, but economics is more dominated by one paradigm than most social sciences are. Mm. So sociology—you'll have Marxist sociologists and you know libertarian sociologists, et cetera, et cetera—and um, there'll be a sort of you know bias towards one dominant school or another to some extent, but in, not not to the overwhelming stage that applies in economics, where 85% of them believe the neoclassical paradigm, and anybody who has a alternative paradigm, and I'm seen as being part, they, they'd call me post-Keynesian, I, I, I work more on what I call complexity economics. Um, but they marginalise and trivialise you. Um, and but, and then the, what they do, and the 85% of believe this stuff, they're self-referential. So they read what they what each of them write. So like I'm, I'm critiquing a paper right now with, a, with three, two scientists, one mathematician and two other economists. And this is a paper that's supposed to assess tipping points in the climate. And this paper argues that if we tip every last major tipping point, so the Arctic summer summer sea ice goes, AMOC goes, Greenland goes, West Antarctica goes, uh, Indian monsoon goes on steroids because of extra uh, moisture levels. Uh, There's three others that they mention. They all go, the impact on the economy will be to reduce GDP by 1.4% compared to what it would have been if those tipping points hadn't been affected. Now we're talking a totally different planet.
0: That's, be, I mean, that's got to be a joke, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's just got to be some sick joke. Because even somebody like me who has no training in economics, and there's no real training in anything, you know, I'm not an expert in anything. Mm. Uh, but to me when I think of climate change you know I think of the extreme environmental destruction mm. I think of climate refugees actually that's my second thought of you know nations yeah. being flooded with more people that they need to take care of Yeah. Um I think of a dramatic reduction in water which is going to impact our ability to produce food.
1: Or uh, or, or, to... or a dramatic increase in water and far too much when you don't want it and towns get washed it's... away by the downpours. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly. You know to me when the minute I think of climate change GDP goes out the window. Yeah, There's no yeah. more GDP yeah, if well, climate change hits in the way that it's going to. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I, one of the papers um, that I've been reading just recently, uh, like Nordhaus's work is the one that I focus on because he had the most influence. He's really been mm-hmm. rabid. you know. He, he, his fingerprints are all over everything from, from trashing the limits to growth right through to government policy in America literally this year. Um, so he's, he's been doing it for 60 something years. He's been fighting all the pressures over. Uh, climate change and trivializing mm-hmm. it. So his, his damage function, it says that for each degree increase in temperature squared, okay, the damage will be put 0.227, 0.227% times the temperature change squared. That'll be the damage to GDP. So if, if you, have a, you need, a, you need a, a two degree increase in temperature to cause GDP to be 1% lower than it would be with no climate change. And when you go up to four degrees, you get you know like a four percent fall in GDP. Um, six. He actually said six percent increase in temperature will cause GDP to fall by eight point five percent, compared okay. to what it would be without climate change at all.
0: Okay, well, but, but, but who, who's GDP?
1: The, globe, uh, you the know, planet. The, the, is the, bit... the planet. The planet.
0: Yeah. The planet. The planet. Yeah. But that's. But the. the... How do I put this? Like. We live in, we don't, okay, I said, you know, we have a global financial system, but we don't really have a global financial market. There's no. different markets that are available and accessible to different yeah. countries, you know? Like, uh, uh, how can you create a globalized GDP when you're also, the, you know, Jakarta is going to be underwater?
1: Well, I mean, they, they, they simply, um, what they argue is that each country, because they are like focusing on agriculture, so pretty much their model of climate change is agriculture gets affected, okay? <sighs> okay uh, so they forget about everything else manufacturing services government that's all going to be fine okay um, yeah 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 oh, no, no. I know I know I mean I'm reading this stuff and I I wouldn't want to pull what little hair out you know that I that I have when I read this stuff and and it, it is so infuriating that they are seen as the experts they are the ones that mm-hmm. I'm the critic I'm the guy from the outside uh, and I look and think you've got to be I was expecting it to be bad work, okay, because I'm used to the mm-hmm. aircraft. but this, this, every time I expect them to, you know, do something bad, they exceed my expectations by being even worse than I can imagine, and Nordhaus is the worst i have ever seen.
0: Mm but it's it's it, it's beyond bad it's 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 unreal yeah it's not exactly. founded yeah. in any understanding of reality if you, you just have to read the ipcc report you have to look at what the wef is saying about mm. you know there's you know they're predicting a global asset burst in the next uh, three to five years they're saying that human inaction is going to be the major reason behind one of three major reasons behind, behind the entire global economy crashing mm-hmm. human inaction uh, against climate change you know like There's lots of literature out there accessible to well, you know, me, just uh, googling yep. away. How is it that these people, and, and I've asked you this question three times in this interview and I'm sorry because you can only <laughs> repeat what you've already said, but like how, how? Uh,
1: because they talk to each other. They're in a bubble and, 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 and they, I mean, i was just going to show you, this is a quote from the IPC, I can just share my screen here, mm-hmm. okay, all right. This is from the IPCC. This is the economic section of the IPCC. Uh-huh. Are other sectors vulnerable to climate change too? Look at this. So, so, agriculture, forestry are exposed to the weather and thus vulnerable to climate change. So weather is cl- climate change is weather. Other economic activities, such as manufacturing and services, take place in controlled environments that are not really exposed to climate change.
0: That was in that was in the IPCC report that was released yep. just a couple of weeks ago.
1: No, this is the year 2014. The, 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 okay. the, it comes out in three sections. This is, I think, Working Group Three, uh, which is where the economists turn up. But that's that's. <laughs> I said, yeah, Working Group Two. Uh, but that that's that they dominate it, and that's the sort of nonsense that they talk to each other about. Um, and when the scientists try to talk to them. Um, they just say well, you don't understand, and, and, the, and the reality is no, they don't understand. Uh, but they wave off the they wave off the scientists.
0: You know, I thought that um, you know our kind of major hurdle towards uh, implicating a system that would be able to address climate change in a realistic and, and impactful manner would be. You, know, you have to get past the capitalists, you know, everybody mm-hmm. likes to talk on Twitter, you know, about the billionaires and all yeah. all this stuff. you know You have to get past the capitalists because mm. capitalism really infinite growth is not good mm. But I, I guess I just kind of assumed That the Academy would be working on good solutions at least, you know, yeah academics don't earn very much There's no point in them being capitalists like surely surely they will be working on models to see us through
1: But that's true of yeah? the scientists. That's true of okay. the scientists and, and they're horrified I mean, most scientists, again, this is the silo stuff you mentioned a while ago, academics in one section of the university don't talk with another section. It's partly that's mm-hmm. just, you know, socializing the economics building is separate from the engineering building. Partly, it's also because, you know, engineers know their own technology and know how complicated it is. And they think economists must know their own technology and know how complicated it is. So as an engineer, I can't comment on, on, on economics. i right. give my favorite story about that, this involves two people that have been, a well, few people I know, uh, a brilliant mathematician called John Blatt, B-L-A-T-T, who was an Austrian refugee to America, then moved to Australia, and was twice nominated for the Nobel Prize in Physics. He didn't get it, but he was nominated twice. And at that same university, a very lovely man, I've got to say, he just died just recently, Murray Kemp, who's a, mm. a international trade theorist and a tennis partner of mine and a lovely, lovely man of all the respect and the wealth for him as a human being. Uh, but Murray does international trade models. And uh, Blatt was famously rude, okay? Uh, and, but, but Murray thought that Blatt was his peer because he was, the two people at the University of New South Wales both nominated for a Nobel Prize, one in economics, the other in physics. So Murray invited John to come along to a seminar one day of Murray's. And when Murray finished giving his uh, speech, he asked over the head of everybody else there, John, what did you think? And John's reply, and you know, I wasn't there, I wish I was there, it turned be a few years after this happened, uh, yeah. but my, my, my friends at the university told me what happened, but they were in the room. And Black said, that is the greatest load of rubbish I have sat through in my academic career. If this is what passes for advanced economics, there is something dreadfully wrong with economics and I intend finding out what it is <laughs> and he then wrote an absolutely he? yes he wrote a brilliant book called dynamic economic systems a post-Keynesian approach uh, which is no thing I'm glad to say it's now been republished and that was a mathematician's rediscovery of economics from before Adam Smith forward uh, with all them you know he, he's a brilliant writer so he writes so well that you can actually read it without needing to read the mathematics and he put the mathematics in appendices most of the time rather than the actual text. So he designed it to be read by, um, by ordinary people in a sense. Uh, and it's a brilliant critique. Uh, so here's somebody who's a you know, mathematician who had a look at it. I'm working with another mathematician now called Mateus Bricelli, who's a Brazilian guy based in Toronto. And Mateus uh, did physics, to, his physics was on quantum, a, classical, a, quantum, uh, a, a, a chaotic version of quantum mechanics. Okay? Nuclear physics with chaos theory. And okay. he's when he was doing his PhD at King's College in London, his uh, the guy he was slatting with is one year older than him, as he was applying for jobs and getting rejected from position after position as a postdoc in physics research. So Mateo said, I'm not gonna have that happen, I'm gonna do this thing that'll well, get me a job. So he's he specialised in financial mathematics and thought that he could use his mathematical mouse to Uh, improve the mathematics of financial economics. So he's merrily doing that. And as part of his career ambition, he wanted to become deputy director of a place called the Fields Institute, which is the world's leading center for applied mathematics in Toronto. So he applied as part of it, he put together a program to have a a specialist uh, seminar on financial mathematics. And what they do is they bring together 20 20 to 50 experts for six to 12 weeks. Okay, all expenses paid. You stand together. You brainstorm for that period. Happened to be right in the, right in the middle of the financial crisis. Mm. Now he said he best an- If he asked anybody what caused the financial crisis at the seminar, he said the best answer he got is I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> and so he asked. He asked one of the the, the the Fields Fields Institute awards the Fields Medal, which is the sort of the mathematical equivalent of the Nobel Prize and he asked his field medalist, does anybody know any work about cycles and instability and capitalism? And one of them said, take a look at the work of a guy called Charles Kindleberger. Uh, Kindleberger has a book called Manias, Panics and, Cr- and Crashes. I think that's the name of it. Um, not a particular, I'm not particularly fond of the book, but in the preface, um, Kindleberger explains the work of Hyman Minsky. And mm. Matthias read this and said, well, this is great. Uh, this makes plenty of sense. It's got the cycles, seems to explain the crisis. There must be plenty of mathematical models out there. I'm going to go and, you know, rather than working in this, you know, this neoclassical stuff, which you now realise was neoclassical, uh, that, that didn't understand the crisis at all, I'm going to help out all those people who must be producing models of Minsky. Now, there, I did my PhD on that topic, and I know there's about two dozen papers that I regard as being mathematical models of Minsky. According to Matthias, there's only one, mine. So we now work together on this stuff, but again, he was somebody who accepted the economists are doing the right thing until a crisis like the financial crisis came along, and then he found they were clueless. And now, unfortunately, we're going to do the same thing with climate change. Only at least with the financial crisis, you could throw all this government money at it, um, you know, regulate, deregulate, and and, and, and uh, you know, let scammers get away with murder and pump money into the economy and all this sort of jazz. You, you, it, you don't you don't suffer a depression. You go down, but you don't you know have a terminal crisis. Climate change isn't like that. When this hits, uh, it, if we don't solve it, it's good by human civilization. And there is no easy way out. But economists will be responsible for getting us to the situation. Whereas if we'd taken the advice of the limits to growth 50 years ago, we could have gradually changed and kept a functional capitalist, a constrained capitalist system, could have worked, but it, no, there's no because they've delayed action for fifty years. That just won't happen now.
0: What is the solution then?
1: You we said constrained, to, but mean like dramatically, have dramatic constraints. So we, we have to right. do the sort of constraints on consumption that were done during the Second World War.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, and like, if you look back at the Second World War, everybody had ration cards. You you couldn't just go and buy whatever you wanted to buy. You had you know, you, go, you bought what your ration card allowed you to buy, um, and we'll need an equivalent to that in terms of if certainly at least carbon. That's going to be the initial thing. So there's a website if you search for called uh, search for carbon rationing dot org, and you'll find a website I'm now associated with about how do we bring about a system of carbon rationing. Okay. Uh, but also like a, dr- a dramatic drop in our energy consumption because. Most of our energy consumption involves burning, you know, generating carbon dioxide. When we start to realise just how drastic the damage is, then we're going to go on, you know, a, a crash course away from that. If we if we simply went with this, what we currently do, which doesn't generate carbon and energy production, that's an eighty five percent fall in energy levels, which would mean an eighty five percent fall in GDP. Now we can't cope with that, of course, yeah. at the moment. Um, but we would have to constrain our consumption so much that we just had the bare minimum for consumers to survive upon, and then everything else in our resources we be thrown at what can we do to reverse the damage we've done to the climate. Right.
0: right. A grim uh, picture, but at least there's a solution in there. At least there still seems to be time.
1: Yeah, oh, well, you know, you've got to give it a try. I mean, the thing is, Mm. I I don't just blame economists for this. It's the nature of humans not to change before a crisis hits. The one time, I think there are two things you look in our history who said, this is going to be a problem, let's fix it. One was what's called the Y2K bug. You ever heard of that? No. Okay. That was, uh, when the initial computer systems were set up, uh, they used eight data bits for everything and to store dates. They stored date strings which ran out in the year 2000. Now that would mean when the year 2000 came around, all these business, okay, so all these computer programmers, uh, you know, raised the alarms that we if we don't rewrite this code, all these databases are going to crash, you know, on the first of January 2000. And lots and lots of money was thrown at it because a whole lot of companies realised their businesses would fold, governments realised it, and so on. So code was meticulously rewritten. And we didn't experience the Y2K bug. And then after it, right. I've seen people say, ah, oh, well, what a waste of time that was. Bullshit. If we hadn't put the money <laughs> in and, and paid the programmers to do it, we would have had a breakdown mm-hmm. of the computing systems of the planet in the year 2000. The other is the mm-hmm. ozone layer. So right. we really we had to get rid of carbon, uh, uh, what do they call them, uh, uh, fluorocarbons? Fluoro we had to reduce those, hydrofluorocarbons. Okay. And that was yeah. done on a grand scale, and the hole in the ozone layer was repaired. Uh, right. So, but those are peripheral things. If you told you have to change the energy system of the planet, okay?
0: Yeah. If you tell people they have to change their behaviour as well, and yeah, if you tell yeah. businesses and lobbyists that yeah. they're going to have to expect a dent in their profits, you know? Yeah, and that's why yeah.
1: they've been fighting it. And economists have helped them fight it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're I welcome. Uh, feel like I know very little. Uh, which I suppose is the point of speaking to an expert every time. <laughs> <laughs> this has been fascinating. Thank you so, so, so much.
1: You're welcome. Wow. So, okay. So I'll stop my recording here. Okay.
0: Hang on. I just have one thing to, to ask you. Um, who would you like to platform? And I don't know if I asked you to prepare this, but I ask every guest to suggest somebody else that I can go out and interview so I can continue the conversation, a guy called. somebody you know.
1: A guy called Simon Michau, S M I C H A U X. And Simon is a mining engineer who's now working in Finland. He's an Australian by background, a very complicated background. He's Huguenot, Sri Lankan, and Australian. Um, okay. A very interesting background. And uh, he's moved to Finland and he's done the best work I've ever seen on the physical constraints to production that we're, we're currently, uh, uh, we're, we're now bumping up against. So he's the, he's the okay. guy, who knows the numbers.
0: All right, brilliant. Okay. Uh, do you, could you introduce me to him? Oh, yeah, sure. Yep, you
1: no problem, I'll pop right, you an email now. Right. Okay. Thank you. Nice Steve, to meet you. thank you so
0: much. It was so, oh, it's nice to meet you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Okay. Oh, but before we go, two things. My Patreon page, so I'll mention that. Yes. So www.patreon.com slash Prof Steve Keen, uh, partly for my funding but also because I want to get the ideas out. So most of my posts there are free access. Uh, and the other is I've got a new book coming out which will be out by the end of the month early, early in October called The New Economics and Manifesto and that covers not just what I've talked about now, but how do you model a cyclical economy uh, and, and and what what should be the methodology of economics as well. So that's, uh, uh, yeah, I hope it's a good read.
0: I, uh, after speaking to you, I have no doubt it will be.
1: <laughs> okay. Good to meet you, Rachel. <laughs> Bye.
0: Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, folks, me again. As Steve mentioned, the links to his Patreon where you can find most of his work and you can support his work as well, most importantly, is over on the episode page at platformenterprise.com where you can also sign up to the mailing list to get these podcast episodes delivered to your inbox every week. And if you have the means, you can support also this podcast by choosing a paid subscription, uh, which I would be very grateful for. Thank you endlessly for your support and see you next week.